Alan Dulles's career as a citizen of this country and as one who has made his vast resources, personally, personal resources, available to this country stretches all the way back to the administration of President Woodrow Wilson. I know of no other American in the history of this country who has served in the administrations of seven presidents, varying from party to party, from point of view to point of view, from problem to problem, and yet at the end of each administration, each president of the United States has paid tribute to his service and has counted Alan Dulles as their friend. This is Retrace. It's September 8th, 2020. That was uh, President John Kennedy in 1961 speaking at the ceremony uh, to award uh, Alan Dulles um, uh, a medal of a medal of honor of some sort. It's available on the uh, the recording of it is available on the Kennedy website, uh, the Kennedy Library website. It's hard to know what to believe about Alan Dulles. He was the first civilian director of Central Intelligence, director of the CIA from 1953 to 1961, basically the CIA's first years. Uh, a journalist, uh, Peter Gross, he was later the deputy director in the State Department for policy planning staff uh, under President Carter. Peter Groves, in 1994, in his biography of Dulles, quotes James Angleton, the um, longtime chief of counterespionage at the CIA under Dulles, uh, as regards the eulogy for Alan Dulles when he died in, I believe, it was 69. And he talks about others' reactions to Dulles' passing as well. Gross says this, Angleton, for all his obsessions with counterespionage, remained a man of sentiment and erudition. He prepared the eulogy for a private ceremony at the Georgetown Presbyterian Church. Alan Macy was flown in from his new home in New Mexico for his father's memorial. Richard Helms offered his arm to Clover Dulles, that was Alan Dulles's wife, to accompany her to her place, surrounded by some 200 unnamed and unheralded veterans of intelligence from around the world. They heard Angleton's words read by the pastor. It is as a splendid watchman that many of us saw him a familiar and trusted figure in clear outline on the American ramparts. But Alan Dulles was much more than a watchman. He was the least passive of humans, the most active and open of men. He stood in full view and was ever accountable in our good society. That's from the eulogy as read by the pastor. Gross goes on. At the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, Hamilton Fish... Armstrong, led a special meeting. He called the former president of the, of the council, his friend from pre-World War I Princeton, a chivalrous knight, a man sans peor et sans reproach, without fear beyond reproach. Testimonials followed in 
testimonials flowed in from across the world. Veterans of the French Resistance gathered at the American Church in Paris for their own memorial service. From the Middle East, David Ben-Gurion and Teddy Kollek of Israel expressed their grief. King Faisal of Saudi Arabia said he had lost a friend. Moscow noted the passing of a man who had fiercely hated the Soviet Union and was the advocate of unscrupulous ideological and propaganda activities by the United States. The most eloquent spokesman of the American right wing was, by contrast, more reserved in assessing Allen's measured stance against communism. Even if he did not know how finally to cope with the enemy, wrote William F. Buckley, he knew at least who the enemy was, and that, those days, is practically a virtuoso performance. And Gross goes on. In his own country, Allen never attained the prominence of his brother, Foster. And Gross notes that Dulles Airport in Washington is named for Foster, not Allen Dulles. But across the restive third world, where the CIA had acquired a reputation larger than life, in Guatemala and its Central American neighbors, for instance, Alan Dulles became the symbol of all the oppression they had suffered from the early and later days of CIA meddling. About that eulogy, the journalist David Talbot has something slightly different to say. He's writing in 2015. Gross was writing in 1994. 2015, and, and Gross wrote a later um, book on Dulles after more CIA documents were disclosed. But that was from the, his earlier biography. But this is journalist David Talbot, and he's talking about the eulogy in particular for Alan Dulles. On January 29, 1969, Dulles died of complications from his illness. Even after his death, the secret organism that Dulles had created continued to pulse. A team led by Angleton swept into the old man's home office while Clover lay in bed upstairs and rifled through his files. CIA technicians installed secure phone lines to handle the flood of condolence calls. As effusive, an effusive eulogy was crafted for his memorial service at Georgetown Presbyterian Church. The soft-spoken church minister, who was used to writing his own funeral orations, balked at reading the bombastic address that had been written by longtime Dulles ghostwriter Charles Murphy, with input from Angleton and Jim Hunt. But the Dulles team quickly set the cleric straight. This is a special occasion, the minister was informed by an official-sounding caller the night before the funeral. The address has been written by the CIA. And he's citing another book, Phillips, for that last quote. So a, a different picture of this eulogy, and, and by way of the eulogies, we're trying to get a picture of Alan Dulles. But it's hard to know what to believe about Alan Dulles. The journalist Joseph Trento, writing in 2001, claims that Angleton, again, the longtime chief of counterespionage at the CIA, said this, in his dying days. So this is from uh, Trento's book, The Secret History of the CIA, 2001, it's page 479, and Trento starts by narrating. I asked the dying old man how it all went so wrong. With no emotion in his voice, 
but with his hand trembling, Angleton replied, Fundamentally, the founding fathers of U.S. intelligence were liars. The better you lied, and the more you betrayed, the more likely you would be promoted. These people attracted and promoted each other. Outside of their duplicity, the only thing they had in common was a desire for absolute power. I did things that, in looking back on my life, I regret. But I was part of it and loved being in it. Alan Dulles, Richard Helms, Carmeloffi, Frank Wisner were the grand masters. If you were in a room with them, you were in a room full of people who you had to believe would deservedly end up in hell. Angleton slowly sipped his tea and then said, I guess I will see them there soon. Trento goes on. Angleton has been portrayed as a lunatic and even a torturer, and, as this book has documented, he did harm to many loyal colleagues. However, I hope this book, has al- this book also clarifies who he really was and gives the reader a sense of the man whose life's mission was to protect the CIA from the enemy. As he told me, sometimes you can find the real enemy right in the mirror. At the end, he seemed grateful for the release his lung cancer brought him. I am afraid that whatever sins I have committed in my life, he said, as he sipped his tea, have now come home to roost. I am fundamentally a failure. I failed to protect the CIA because there was no real desire to secure the place from the Soviets. I never understood the great advantage the Russians had over us. As Americans, we just hold no real value in secrecy. God, it was such a simple explanation. Um, Trento is, is, is the source for these quotes. He says that Angleton cooperated with him in the writing of his book on the condition that he not publish anything that Angleton said until 10 years after his death. So it's worth pausing to reflect on what Trento just claims Angleton said on more or less on his deathbed. If it's true, the better you lied and the more you betrayed, the more likely you would be promoted, that fundamentally the founding fathers of U.S. intelligence were liars, and other than their duplicity, the only thing they had in common was desire for absolute power. If that's true, it's true of Dulles, he's the first person that Angleton names, and it's uh, true of Richard Helms and, and the others, Carmel Offie and Frank Wisner. And it certainly must be true of the culture culture at CIA, or at least um, the culture for a long time there. But if it's false, it, it's almost as profound. Maybe not in its impact on the world, but if it's true, we have to ask the question, who was Alan Dulles? in a really sober way. We should ask the question soberly anyway, but if that's true, what what Angleton is saying through Trento. But if it's false, we, we have to ask, who is Trento, this journalist writing the secret history of the CIA? Um, going back to Talbot, David Talbot, the journalist, 
in trying to find out what sort of person Alan Dulles was or what we should believe about him. Uh, Talbot says that Dulles had John Kennedy killed. At the top of this segment, we quoted John Kennedy at a ceremony for Alan Dulles, heaping praise upon him, and David Talbot and others believe that Alan Dulles was either involved in or orchestrated Kennedy's assassination. This is uh, from page 560 of Talbot's book, The Devil's Chessboard. Subtitle of it is uh, Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the Rise of America's Secret Government. Again, this is 2015. Over the final months of JFK's presidency, a clear consensus took shape within America's deep state. Kennedy was a national security threat. For the good of the country, he must be removed. And Dulles was the only man with the stature, connections, and decisive will to make something of this enormity happen. He had already assembled a killing machine to operate overseas. Now he prepared to bring it home to Dallas. All that his establishment colleagues had to do was to look the other way, as they always did when Dulles took executive action. And it's worth remembering that the the term deep state or American deep state in 2015 did not quite hold the weight and connotations and political charge that it holds today in 2020. So maybe Dulles was a uh, government leader and hero in their in that in that capacity, or maybe he is the worst villain you can imagine. Um, he might have been a good guy. He might have been a bad guy. He might be any mixture of the two. We we have to set aside the question as essentially out of reach, uh, especially for the outsider, because the evidence is almost entirely documents of one form or another, and uh, there are many many of these documents, and they're they're conflicting about the the question. Um, what is not disputed about Alan Dulles, though, is his expertise in the domain of strategic, what we're calling strategic intelligence. And helpfully, there's a book, The Craft of Intelligence, which he's supposed to have written about this subject, um, which is great. Uh, whatever you think of the man as a moral figure, he's he's written about the very thing that can transcend his moral charge and benefit us in some way by by teaching us something objective or or, or at least not loaded with a, an individual's character the craft of intelligence well unfortunately we have to hold off believing that he actually wrote this book or that he wrote the whole thing or every word of it so going back to Talbot the Devil's Chessboard um, he says it's a Cold War screed uh, written by multiple authors, uh, including CIA staff and, and, and others. This is from page 486. Um, when Cass Canfield, that's a, he's a Dulles' friend, a publisher, 
uh, at Harper and Row. When Cass Canfield asked Dulles to write a book drawing on his long career as a spook, Dulles was initially noncommittal, telling the publisher, First of all, I shall have to persuade myself that I have the aptitude and the skills to do effective writing, as I am not much of a believer in ghosts, quote-unquote. It was another less-than-truthful statement, for Dulles always relied on others, including CIA employees and media assets, to write his books, his magazine articles, and speeches. Despite Dulles's retirement status, the craft of intelligence was an agency enterprise, drawing on the writing skills of Howard Hunt, Howard Roman, and friendly Fortune magazine reporter Charles Murphy, as well as the research and editing skills of top CIA analyst Sherman Kent and Dulles's former right-hand man Frank Wisner, whose career came to an end in 1962 because of a deepening mental because of deepening mental problems. Dulles also drew on his extensive academic contacts, uh, uh, academic contacts for help, including W. Glenn Campbell at Stanford's Hoover Institution, who provided ready access to his extensive files on the communist threat. Kent also suggested that Dulles, quote, use your potent association with Princeton to good effect and con, quote-unquote, Joseph Strayer, the longtime chair of Princeton's history department, into drafting the section of Dulles' book dealing with the medieval roots of espionage. And, and he's citing a letter to Alan Dulles, November 15th, 1962, that's in uh, Dulles' papers at, the, at the, the Mud Library. I guess that's where the Dulles' papers are. So, uh, definitely some doubt about the authorship, not Dulles' involvement, but... Um, his his exclusive claim to writing it. And, and uh, Talbot goes on, Dulles was so deeply connected in the media world that the critical response to the craft, craft of intelligence was all but assured when it was published in the fall of 1963. The Washington Post heralded what amounted to little more than a predictable Cold War screed as one of the most fascinating books of our time. And, and I can testify that that's always a blurb on the front or back cover. It's on the front cover of my edition uh, of the various editions of this book. The New York Times critic, the New York Times's critic found a clever way to celebrate a book that revealed very little of Dulles's actual spycraft, praising his brilliantly selective candor. The Times's review provided other blurb-worthy quotes for the book, declaring there is material enough here on breathlessly high-level sleuthery to keep Helen McKines or McKinnis and Ian Fleming busy writing all kinds of thrillers, an absurdly exaggerated comment considering the book's calculatedly tame contents. Calculatedly tame. And sure enough, that blurb is on the back cover of my edition of The Craft of Intelligence. So... Doesn't mean Talbot's right, but it's worth keeping in mind. Um, CIA's website, CIA.gov, does confirm that Dulles did seem to work with Charles Murphy as a ghostwriter. Uh, there's a letter from 1960, a reply from Dulles to Charles Murphy, um, and they're talking about a book that they plan to work together to write. Um, but the, the, the obviously they don't have a title yet, and so it's not. I'm not absolutely sure that 
They're talking about the craft of intelligence, but they probably are. Going back to Peter Gross in his biography, um, he says that the craft of intelligence was a compromise of sorts. This is from 539. When he tried to interest publishers in his views on the communist menace to free societies, he was informed that his only marketable book would be a now-it-can-be-told account of his world of espionage. He compromised on a slim volume called The Craft of Intelligence, published in 1963, which contained a few favorite stories and more of his theories about communist perfidy in the great game. For all his distrust of ghosts, he asked one accomplished writer of his acquaintance, E. Howard Hunt, to draft a few chapters. The book failed to live up to the promise of its title as a distillation of his experience, either theoretical or practical, for a public still uninformed about the role of ongoing intelligence as an essential instrument of government. In or out of office, wrote the mostly friendly reviewer, Alan Dulles is incorrigibly discreet, unfailingly gentlemanly. So, what have we established? Well, first, we don't and, and pr- probably can't know Alan Dulles, the man, and we don't necessarily know who's talking when we read the book. But it does seem like certain chapters are all or mostly Alan Dulles's voice, and chapter 15 is one of them. Chapter 15 is titled, Security in a Free Society. This is the gist of that chapter. We're going to talk about it briefly and then move on to the problems that we have to be prepared for in reading it before we dive in more deeply. So I'll just read the first two paragraphs and let Alan Dulles or whomever tell us what this chapter is about. Security in a Free Society. Free peoples everywhere abhor government secrecy. There is something sinister and dangerous, they feel, when governments shroud their activities. It may be an entering wedge for the establishment of an autocratic form of rule, a cover-up for their mistakes. Hence, it is difficult to persuade free people that it may be in the national interest, at times, to keep certain matters confidential, that their freedoms may eventually be endangered by too much talk about national defense measures and delicate diplomatic negotiations. After all, what a government or the press tells the people, it automatically tells its foes. And any person who, through malice or carelessness, gives away a secret may be betraying it to the Soviets just as clearly as if he secretly handed it to them. What good does it do to spend millions to protect ourselves against espionage if our secrets just leak away? Free people have the urge to talk, and they have the urge to know. This is a problem identified in this chapter by Dulles et al. This can cause them danger. This, this urge can cause free people danger, because when you talk and when you can know things through the press, through government publications, through leaks of various sorts. Um, your enemies know them too. 
Enemies are listening to everything that an outsider can listen to. And Dulles points out that this is an overlooked consequence of the urge for more freedom or absolute freedom to talk and to know, especially as regards matters of government and especially within government, national security. And the ultimate, uh, and, and perhaps the, the last of his major points is, uh, why should we spend so much money on intelligence if we're going to undo it by various kinds of leaks? This is not quite the same point that he makes in sur- in, in, to support his argument. Uh, first, he starts with the danger of of the openness, the urge to openness, but then he moves on to this sort of overlooked problem of waste or this error of waste, spending money and then and then undoing all that the money was spent to to achieve. So that's the case that Dulles aims to make in, in chapter 15, Security in a Free Society. Uh, but the chapter has a lot more in it than just his intended argument. And we're going to go through it more carefully in our next segment. But before we do that, there is probably good reason to talk about some of the problems we're going to wrestle with in examining this chapter and in in many chapters or many arguments made uh, in, in different contexts. So, I'm going to talk about these problems, and they don't they do apply to Dulles's chapter fifteen, but they they don't just apply to Dulles's chapter fifteen. First, there are problems of evidence. Let's start with text. Text can be altered. It can be elided. Uh, different editions can add or remove paragraphs or even individual words or sentences. I, I, I've seen paragraphs removed without much note. Um, I've never seen a sentence removed that I can remember. And, and, and individual words only, by, only accidentally, not intentionally. Um, but it's, it's, a real, it's a real possibility, if not, if not a valid concern. Whenever you read, I mean, my edition, the 2016 edition of this book, is um, it doesn't even make mention of the original publication date in, uh, in the, on the copyright page. It, it's uh, it's copywritten. The copyright is owned by his da- Alan Dulles' daughter now, um, Joan. Uh, but who knows who could have done what to such books? The game is completely changed by digital content, Kindle books, or even newspaper articles online. I mean, it's one thing to try and suppress history when it's when it's when it exists in ink stains on paper throughout the world, it's quite another when you have almost light speed access if you know what you're doing on the security front. You have instant light speed access to all of the storage locations that anyone bothers to read or or view in the case of video or audio. Um, so textual alteration or really alteration of anything, think of deep fakes, the new problem on the not even on the horizon anymore. It's it's upon us. It's not hasn't caused an, an international incident yet, but it's almost inevitable. Um, alterations. Let's call that problem alterations. Uh, well, machines and automation might help with that, uh, and, and I've heard that um, blockchain technology might help with the deepfake problem. Um, but 
certainly we could write programs easily enough to verify texts texts against texts if we have them in digital form. Um, but those programs can be uh, can make the problem even worse. They can be uh, written to achieve a different goal, the the the, goal, the opposite of what we're trying to achieve, which is um, verification. It depends on who controls them, who controls the programs, or who controls where the programs are stored after they've been written. Another problem is context. The author, Dulles or whomever else of, of the chapter, is uh, has assumptions that that he's making. I'll say he's making. I, I you know safe enough. He has assumptions that he's making, and. Um, and you know, the further back you go, the the harder it is to relate to any writing, any anything written. Um, we're only going back to the '60s, but the, the problem can still apply. I mean, the, the problem could apply to yesterday. I mean, if you if you follow a news cycle, there's a lot there. I mean, there's there's a lot there, and there's nothing there most of the time. But that's all context. Follow, follow a, a, an event on Twitter or whatever the social media platform is when you hear this. Um, there was an enormous amount of information passing through that bottleneck of a, of a, of a text feed, or if it becomes all visual in the future. Um, you don't have that when, when, you, when you select an artifact, like a book, or a tweet, or a video or a virtual reality, or, you know, a three-dimensional, 360-degree uh, recording of an event captured by, you know, whatever the news, the primary news source is in the United States in the year 2030. Even that, we, we don't have the capacity. There's no, human beings don't have the capacity to absorb the information, the, the, the garden, the bed, the atmosphere of relevant information um, that surrounds a major event. And, and there's, there is a lot that we can say constructively about this problem. Um, we're not going to get to it today, but uh, David Fisher's Historian's Fallacies deals with this to some extent. But it, it's, it's, I mean, it, you can say that context is a problem th- that is embedded in the assumptions made by the author, or you can say it's a problem embedded in the reader or the viewer or the listener uh, based on his or her um, architectural limitations or constitutional limitations. We just don't have it in us to go back in time um, the way that you might have to to understand some, some artifact like a book or a recording. And the other problem with context is Things get taken out of context. Uh, things get taken out of context by the author or authors. Uh, so anytime, and, and some some people are much worse offenders at this uh, at this problem than than others. But um, those are problems of context. Another problem that arises with this chapter and and with with all arguments under the heading of problems of evidence is what we can call the question of uh, the we question. Who is we? When someone's making an argument and they say, we should do this, we know this, we always do that, we can't do this, 
Who is we? It's, it's not a trivial question. It really isn't. It goes back to the problem of assumptions and context just mentioned. Um, and it's a recurring one for the reader. An example in, in Dulles chapter 15, he says this on the flip page, I think, uh, of what we just read. Uh, the question is whether we can improve our security system consistent with the maintenance of our free way of life and a free press and whether, on balance, it is worthwhile to try at least to, to limit our security lapses and indiscretions. And that is, yeah, on, on the flip page, 236. Um, we, our, our, we. Uh, he, says, he says we once an hour three times. So, you could read deeply into that. You could, you could, you could have a lot of thoughts about that, but we'll move on. And just keep in mind that we don't always know who he's talking about, who he's thinking about, who he means when he says we, nor with any author or speaker, anybody making a point. Um, another problem of evidence is just the simple observation, often neglected, easily neglected, easily forgotten, that we can't read his thoughts, we can only read his writing. It is very easy for me to write a sentence that says, I believe in a tenth or ninth planet in our solar system. I can write that sentence, and you can read that, and you can think that I believe that, but I just wrote it as a thought experiment for this purpose. It's not really what I believe. You're reading my writing, not my thoughts. That's important to remember. You can only imagine what a spy master, the first civilian director, really the first director, I mean, the, the, the guy before him was sort of an interim. Um, you can only imagine what a spy master like Dulles might say, as opposed to what he at the same time, might actually think. Whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. Or in between. Uh, another problem of evidence is that we can't hear his thoughts. We can only hear his words. There are recordings, there are audio. There's a great interview with Dulles um, as part of sort of a, an hour-long documentary, I think done by NBC. And, you know, so he's... There's about five or ten minutes of Dulles sort of answering the reporter's semi-tough questions. And again, it's the same as the, as the problem of thoughts versus writing. You can, you can hear his words, but you can't hear his thoughts. And we, we live in a strange time where it's almost possible to imagine Neuralink or, or some successor to that uh, neotenous company um, enabling us to think that we can read people's thoughts. I mean, how many times would you need to talk to a friend or a spouse or your boss or a colleague using an implant of some sort? How many times would you need to do that without issue, without incident, before you would start to believe that you were reading their thoughts all the time? Compare email, right? How many emails do you have to get from a loved one or an employer before you're convinced that those emails are really coming from that source and that they accurately reflect what that source wants you to hear from them. It takes zero email. It's the first email. We trust email. We will presumably trust neural implants or the equivalent, whatever whatever we call them when they when they start to become real and viable. But like email, they can be altered, and 
like email today or or you know text text messages of any sort soon actual video and audio messages from people you know uh, um run through some sort of deep fake technology um they can all those things that exist today can already be powerfully manipulated and just tweaked at just the right time when you're making just the the most sensitive decision or when you're just the right amount of vulnerable to believing one thing versus another so that 99.9% of the messages you get from your loved one are the real deal but that 0.1% is being manipulated by someone or something that will apply to brain chips and 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 whatever the term will be for them but we won't think we won't worry about it because most of the time they'll work and when they don't work we might not even know that they didn't work are you sure that every message you've ever gotten from your best friend actually came from him or her how how could you be sure of that another problem of evidence is that we can't witness past events we can only witness the evidence that reaches us evidence from the events themselves and from elsewhere this is easy to forget dulles will be telling us about all kinds of things in his chapter 15 others will be telling us about all kinds of other things in their other chapters and we will feel like we know what happened when they tell us but we don't i, I don't i don't want to say that we I shouldn't say we don't, because it it makes it sound like you know you should question everything, and that and that's not true, or I don't believe it's true. But certainty is profoundly elusive, and most of the time it's of no consequence. The vast majority of the time it's of no consequence, but it can't be of no consequence all the time, because think of what you could do. If you had just the right point of access or point of leverage or just the right moment of opportunity to influence what someone believes, who believes that certain knowledge is possible and that they've got it all the time about past and present events, perhaps even the crazy among them future events as well. So we can't know who killed Kennedy, although if you bring this subject, bring up this subject with anybody who's spent any time on it, presumably you will, you will be told exactly who did it <laughs> with, with utter confidence. And similarly, we can't know whether Alan Dulles was a good guy, evil, or otherwise. We can only know what reaches us and what we manage to reach for ourselves. We're back to the problem of evidence, and we're dealing with we're dwelling on specific problems of evidence or the manifestation of the general problem of evidence. But in in segment one, our last segment, you'll um, you'll notice that we first looked at uh, evidence Horwich's probability and evidence, and he he's <laughs> he, he's gone. As, as hard as, a, as a, an intellectual and an academic can go at this problem. And we're going we're gonna to have to 
rely on him a lot when we get into the danger zones. Um, so let's say that we have history, which is pretty much anything that's happened, even seconds ago, we could technically call history. And, and it's not really strictly knowable. And um, while that's true, it does seem to be somewhat bounded by probability. Again, we can look at Horwich probability and evidence. Um, and along with history, which is not strictly knowable, we have ideas about how the world works. Ideas about how the world works are not history. They're present right now. You can call them memories, or you can call them some sort of part of your thinking, or you can call them you know, some sort of physical aspect of your thinking, or, or, or physical aspect of, of what you are, your body, your brain. Um, but they're not in the past. Nothing is in nothing that you can access immediately is can be in the past because we don't we you know as far as we understand as far as we think of the concept of time we can't reach back in it we can't reach forward or back we can only deal in in probabilities. Um, but ideas about how the world works can be tested, and um, such tests themselves are actually history uh, unless we conduct them ourselves presently. It's thorny. This stuff is is hard to wrestle with and, and, and everyone loses. As far as I've seen, I haven't seen anybody really defeat this bear, the problem of the, these various manifestations of the problem of evidence. Uh, while the whole truth is, strictly speaking, out of reach, there is something that might be, at least for human beings, more important, or in certain contexts, more important. And that's this. What others believe to be the truth is always present. And sometimes it's within reach if they're open to telling us. So there's a difference between the, the truth and what other people or other things, we have to deal with that in, in technology, machines, and artificial intelligence. There's the truth, and then there's what other people or things, persons or things, believe to be the truth. And what others believe is similar to what we just mentioned, ideas about how the world works that, that we hold ourselves. They're present with us. They're not history. They're not part of the past. You can access them immediately. Now, you can't necessarily access what others believe to be true, strictly speaking, but they tend to tell you, in my experience. Or at least that's a belief that I have about the world that's present with me at this moment. They tend to tell you. They want to tell you. I want to tell you, dear listener. So much for problems of evidence. We're talking about how we should be prepared to read chapter 15 of, and we're not going to read it word for word, we're going to analyze it, chapter 15 of Alan Dulles' Craft of Intelligence. It's titled, Security in a Free Society. We've just talked about the problems of evidence, now let's talk about another set of problems, just as thorny, perhaps not separate from the problems of evidence, but they seem to be, or they feel like they're separate. Problems of trust. 
So, every single line of this book or this chapter or any book or any chapter or anything written could be deceptive towards some end, some motivated act of deception. The author might also be making mistakes. They might be error-prone on the subject um, or, or in the way that they're thinking about the subject. And so, we have at least two reasons to be suspicious of what we read or hear or see. Deception on the one hand and then error on the other. Another problem of trust is uh, that for every conventional account of, for example, Alan Dulles's life, uh, there is an opposite. And this, this is this will be easy for the listener to confirm. Um, there are lots of books that speak highly of him, and lots of books and writings and recordings that do the opposite. So the issue becomes: which source, which sources should we trust? Uh, if we only trust based on reputation, the reputation of the source, so let's say some random person on social media or on a podcast uh, tells us one thing, they have no reputation, perhaps they have less than no reputation, they have a bad reputation, you can find some evidence that they have a, a deservedly bad reputation, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have some, pick your most trusted source of information, whatever it is. Uh, I, I won't hazard to to say what I what mine is because I don't have one, and also because it it will make us seem more different than we are in a lot of cases. Um, pick your most reputable source. That's the other end of the spectrum. That person or organization or entity tells you something, and you believe it. Uh, you're you're basing you're not basing it on you're not basing that belief on the the content of the message that that was sent to you. You're not basing it on an analysis of that content, you're basing it on reputation. Well, uh, reputation is vulnerable. There's an attack. There are many attacks on on reputation, and they're well known in the security community, uh, however you want to define it. Um, The destruction of someone's reputation can take down everything and anything and everything that they say, or it says, if if you're talking about an entity or an organization. Um, that's a pretty big vulnerability. Suppose, I mean, take the, take the, take an ideal example, uh, (laughs) a serial liar who's been caught over and over and over again. And, and, and there's no doubt in anyone's mind about this, uh, trail of evidence suddenly sees something incredible and starts telling everyone about it. it. It's sort of a boy who cried wolf problem, but it's not quite that. Because, no, I guess it is. I mean, you know, you're having fun or for wh- whatever your motivation is for telling all these lies. Then when something real happens, that information is trapped. It's not even trapped. You get, the, 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 the listeners get the information, but the source has contaminated it, more than contaminated it, ruined it. What if you you were in a position of power and you had something that you knew or that you did and you wanted to keep it secret? 
Well, the reputation attack, I don't know if they call it that. I'm not in the security community, but let's call it that. The reputation attack would be a good way of, presumably a good way of keeping it secret. So as soon as someone tells your secret in any context, you destroy their reputation. Now, if you're not in a position of power, it might backfire. If you're just, you're keeping a secret, someone else on your level of power hears the secret, tells the secret, or knows the secret, tells the secret, and you attack the reputation, you might actually look more guilty, or you might, it might tend to confirm in the minds of others what that person is saying. But if you're in a position of power, the game is completely different, you know, relative power to the person whose reputation you would attack. I won't speculate about examples of where this might be going on, but um, they're in the danger zone. Go back to segment one for a loose definition of that. We can put a technical term on this reputation attack. Um, the argument ad hominem, you, you might have heard an ad hominem attack, or an ad hominem fallacy. And just for a brief reminder, we'll go back to Charles Hamblin and his fallacies uh, 1970. He just briefly tells us uh, that the mo- in the modern tradition, an argument ad hominem is committed when a case is argued not on its merits, but by analyzing, usually unfavorably, the motives or background of its supporters or opponents. That's page 41. Now, remember, this ad hominem attack is, is usually... Um, discussed in the context of arguments, logic and arguments, but it's a simple statement is not an argument. Uh, there's no logic to be done in a, in a, in a simple statement. Or, or, or let's say, I mean, it depends on the nature of the, or the structure of the, the sentence or the, the, um, the statement, but assert, asserting a fact or asserting you know, something about something to be true is not an argument unless you make the assertion complex with a because or the word for, or however you want to add in the argument um, machinery. So a person who knows an important secret whose reputation is being attacked is not making an argument, and therefore an attack on that person is not the technical version of ad hominem. Um, But that subtle difference is important because... We might not, um, is there a word for attacking someone's reputation? There must be, because we know that the intelligence agencies, I'm not going to say that they do them. I don't know if they do them. I'm not in them, and I haven't read enough of the history to point you to a source. But I have read it, but I can't point you to a source uh, off the top of my head. Um, What's the technical term? What's the insider term for attacking someone's reputation? Someone must know this. Write to us at contact at retrace.com. Another problem under the heading of problems of trust is that there is endless material, old and new, about intrigue and about anything. Now, we're in the information age, and there's, I mean, it's, that, that's an antiquated term. We're in some sort of exponential explosion of information, although I do think that most of it, if you measure it in bits and bytes, uh, you know, how many exabytes of quote-unquote information is created every day or every year by our civilization. Uh, most of it is 
you know, high resolution video. I mean, how much information is in, you know, a Jay-Z video or a Taylor Swift video? A lot and also almost none, right? So, but we're still in some sort of explosion of information. If you want to go, if you, anything you Google or your search engine of choice, which is undoubtedly Google today, but might not be tomorrow, um, you'll get a lot of information. But as we've already discussed in segment one, you'll get the 95% that's cheap, presumably, unless you get extraordinarily lucky. And the more cheap information there is, the harder it is to get a hole in one, to get lucky and find what you're looking for. Unless someone wants you to find it. Unless your search engine benefits commercially somehow from, from you going to one place and, or another. Or your bookstore, your online bookstore, benefits somehow from you finding what you're looking for as opposed to becoming interested in something you weren't looking for and that might be beside the point but is commercially viable for that bookstore. There's endless material. So it seems our trust can only be placed, perhaps, with any, and with, with any shred of confidence in people or persons who satisfy at least two criteria. One, um, they need to be in a demonstrable position, really a position of power and control, to know what they claim to know. And uh, the... Criterion number two is uh, that they need to have a significant incentive to share that information, that knowledge with us or anyone. Someone with those two, satisfying those two criteria might be worthy of trust. I mean, trust is a complicated thing that, you know, emerges between people who know, between people who know each other, uh, not necessarily for a long time, but in a, cer- in a certain way and or perhaps a long time. But we're talking about trusting sources, trusting, you know, say, Dulles in the craft of intelligence or trusting anybody who claims to be telling you about what happened or how the world works. The enterprise of this, this company, Retrace, is to work on the question of what's going on out there. Well, anybody who presents an answer or, or some part of an answer is going to be telling us either what happened in the past, or maybe they'll tell us about the future, but we'll be we'll, we'll squint quite a bit at, at such claims uh, of knowledge. They, they're either telling us something about the past, or they're telling us something timeless, something that is always true, some law of physics, or law of nature, or law of human nature, or whatever. They're they're telling us about how the world works, or what's going on out there. Who should we trust? There are too many sources. We have to have some way of filtering them. If they're in a demonstrable position of power or control to know what they claim to know, that's a good sign. And if they, uh, if they have not just an incentive, but a, a significant incentive to share that information with us, that's another good sign. It's not an exhaustive list, but that's th- these are things worth keeping in mind when we talk about or think about the problem of trust. Now, specifically on those two points, we mentioned power, and 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 sort of in hand in hand, uh, hand in hand with the word control, power and control, and then we mentioned incentives. I, I we have to flesh this out. What do I mean by power? I'm not talking necessarily in any given instance about electrical power, although I will be talking about that. 
I'm talking about the softer kind or the more difficult kind to define. And there is a lot that has been said about this kind of power. I mean, we're talking about the craft of intelligence. We're talking about, we think, what Alan Dulles says about the craft of intelligence, or what Alan Dulles says about security in a free society. It's dripping with power. What do we mean by that? Well, let's, let's try to mean something by it. Remember, our point of departure in segment one was the word and the idea of intelligence, and we talked about three kinds of intelligence. Natural intelligence, artificial intelligence, and what we're working on now, strategic intelligence, what you might loosely equate with espionage, counter-espionage, covert action, which is usually associated with nation-states these days, but it's not the exclusive domain of nation-states. But, strategic power is not the only, strategic intelligence is not the only context in which we can talk about this strange and difficult to define form of power that presumably Alan Dulles had in spades and the CIA did and does still have in spades. Joseph Weizenbaum wrote a book called Computer Power and Human Reason, and he was writing, or he published in 1976. Um, this is from a chapter called Science and the Compulsive Programmer, and by programmer he means computer programmer. So I have to just sort of lead you into this. He's, um, he's working on the question of how, uh, how do magical systems or magical systems of thought remain at all a force in the minds of men? And those are his words. And, and he's offering three mechanisms at play that keep magical systems of thought in men's minds, presumably women's minds. I don't know. The first mechanism um, he later calls circularity, and, and he describes it this way. Any contradiction between experience and one magical notion is explained by reference to other magical notions. And he goes on to elaborate the point. The second mechanism, he says, is he calls later he calls self-expansion. He describes it this way. Um, the programmer, talking about program, he, he's, he's comparing programmers and gamblers. The programmer is free to convert every new embarrassment into a special case to be handled by a specially constructed ad hoc subprogram and to be thus incorporated into his overall system. So that's what he means by self-expansion. He, he elaborates, but we won't do that here. The last mechanism at play in, in the maintenance and protection of magical systems of thought, he says, um, he, he calls suppressed nucleation. Suppressed nu that's a term for you that we probably won't reuse. Um, he says this, that uh, the... I've got to cut and slice and dice his words here to, to, to make this quick. Um, the magical system is it may be protected by denying to any rival conception the ground in which it might take root. 
he's, he goes on to say, um, such evidence, you know, an alternative conception of, of what's going on, such evidence cannot accumulate in the minds of gamblers or programmers, he's inserting that, if each bit of evidence is disregarded in its turn for lack of the concept which would lend significance to it. it, it it's kind of subtle and, and, and not quite, he doesn't quite uh, crystallize it. That's the, pref- that's the prelude to what I'm now going to read. So these, he says this, and we're talking about power. He says this, these three mechanisms, called by, called by Polanyi circularity, self-expansion, and suppressed nucleation, constitute the main defensive armamentarium of the true adherent of, a magical, of magical systems of thought, and particularly of the compulsive computer programmer. Psychiatric literature informs us that this pathology deeply involves fantasies of omnipotence. The conviction that one is all-powerful, however, cannot rest. It must constantly be verified by tests. The test of power is control. The test of absolute power is certain and absolute control. When dealing with the compulsive programmer, we are therefore also dealing with this need to control and his need for certainty. The passion for certainty is, of course, also one of the great cornerstones of science, philosophy, and religion, and the quest for control is inherent in all technology. Indeed, the reason we are so interested in the compulsive programmer is that we see no discontinuity between his pathological motives and behavior and those of the modern scientist and technologist generally. The compulsive programmer is merely the proverbial mad scientist who has been given a theater, the computer, in which he can and does play out his fantasies. The test of power is control. The test of absolute power is absolute certainty and control. A good introduction to the concept of power when not speaking in electrical contexts, but Weizenbaum is not at all the last word on power or on control, but he will be for today. Um, And these concepts will come back into view clearly when we examine natural and artificial intelligence in turn. So much for control when we're trying to figure out whether we should trust the source. What about the incentive to share the information? What about whether it makes sense that this source is telling us what they're telling us? Well, it might make sense if there's if, if we can identify an, ins- uh, an incentive or a sufficiently significant incentive or a sufficient number of incentives for them to tell us. It seems obvious when we say it out loud, but it's not. Or it is obvious, but it's easily forgotten. There's a lot to be said about incentives, but we'll just grab hold of an op-ed from the New York Times a year or two ago by two Nobel Prize winning economists. Not that we should set aside our criticisms because they won the Nobel Prize. They didn't win the Nobel Prize for this op-ed. They won the Nobel Prize for something else. But presumably they have good heads on their shoulders so we can hear them out. Um, They argue that financial incentives, presumably when I talk about incentives, you hear money, you hear other things, but money has got to be up there. And financial is is almost a synonym for money. 
They argue that financial incentives are nowhere near as powerful as they are usually assumed to be. They go on to say this. If it is not financial incentives, what else might people care about? The answer is something we know in our guts. Status. Dignity. Social connections. Chief executives and top athletes are driven by the desire to win and be the best. The poor will walk away from social benefits if they come with being treated like a criminal. And among the middle class, the fear of losing their sense of who they are and their status in the local community can be an extraordinarily paralyzing force. I didn't quite notice this when I grabbed that excerpt. Um, but the concept of force is profoundly important to the concept of power, both the physical, technical version of it, or, or, or meaning of it, and I think also, and, and I'll go on to argue in, in future segments, the, the kind of power we're talking about when we talk about Alan Dulles, the CIA, or strategic intelligence organizations more generally. So, what can we finally say about the problem of trust? Trust in sources of information. Well, the first is, would they know? Are they in a position of power or in a position of any sort? Really, I mean, the position of power, we say loosely. We, a whistleblower is not necessarily in what we traditionally think of as a position of power, but if they know something on which to blow a whistle or on which a whistle can be blown, they, that is a position of power by, by the standards or definitions we would be using in this context. Would that person or would that entity know? That's the first question to ask or one of the first questions. The next question or another question is, would they tell us if they did? Do they have incentives or an incentive, a sufficiently significant incentive? Secrets kept are powerful. Again, go back to the Manhattan Project. How effective would that bomb have been if news of its development had leaked six months before it was ready? We'll never know. Secrets kept are powerful. Senses of right and wrong are powerful. Self-preservation is powerful. The desire to be loved, the desire to be feared are powerful. What is the difference, we might ask? When we wonder about sources and trusting sources, we might ask what is the difference between the Pentagon Papers, Google it if you don't know, the authenticity of which we do not question, or Cy Hirsch's Milai story, Google it. What's the difference between such documents, and they were both documents, and other more unbelievable documents or testimonials? Why is it that one might be so universally believed? You know, photocopies of a government study, in the case of the Pentagon Papers, a newspaper, front-page newspaper article in the case of Milai, Cy Hirsch. Why is it that one might be so universally believed and then another document, pick, pick your, your lesser document, um, would not be believed, would not even be read, let alone, but you don't know whether anybody would ever believe some of the documents floating around out there because no one reads them. 
And I don't mean few people read them. I mean, literally, there are <laughs> the internet makes it possible. Hell, I mean, home printing devices make it possible. Uh, but the internet makes it even more possible to create documents that literally will never be read by anyone, even their authors. So, so much for the problems, the obvious problems of trust, and we will see them come up again and again. The next set of problems is, is a bit harder to parse, and, and I'm, I'm going to say that, I'm going to call them problems of is and ought, if, you, if you're familiar with the philosophical debates around those two terms. Good for you. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm just going to say that these problems that I'm about to talk about are problems of what is, what is the case, whether someone's telling you or you believe it yourself or you have some sort of evidence, and then what is what ought to be problems of what is the case and then what ought to be the case what should be there's a there might be a big gap between these two things the philosophers are still working on that but i'm not going to talk about that i'm just going to say that that's the heading that we're under so let's talk about good guy problems or good guy and bad guy problems so what is said or done by an actor, for example, an author, uh, does not reveal as much as we need it to reveal to know that person. In order for us to know that person, what they say and what they do is not, strictly speaking, enough. Now, most of the time, it's a good rule of thumb, probability, distributions, priors, <laughs> Bayesian priors, for, for you dorks out there, like myself, um, they, they do help. Probability does help, we think. It seems, you know, manifestly true that probability helps, but strictly speaking, what someone does, what, some, what they say, does not reveal what we need to know about a person to know that person in, in, a, in, in whatever way we mean when we say we know somebody. And the obvious counterexamples are endless. Someone can... From your, I mean, you listen. You can't follow someone around all day long, and you can't hear everything they say. So, even if you're with them ninety percent, I mean, well, adultery is the perfect example. Spouses get cheated on all the time; they never see it coming. It's because what someone says to you, or what someone does while you're watching, or when you're aware of them, is not enough to know what's really going on. Now, why is this a good guy problem, or why is it a good guy bad guy problem? Well, good guys tend to have I should say, it would be nice to know whenever you're dealing with someone like Alan Dulles or me or anybody, whether they're a good guy or a bad guy by your definition. Okay, so the, what they say or what they do, unfortunately, is not enough for you to tell for sure. Good guys have disadvantages. Let's name some. Good guys tend to be open. I don't think I'm overstretching when I say that. Um, they say, they tell the truth, they, they tell what they're really thinking as a tendency. I don't think bad guys have the same sort of tendency. You can't. It's, it'd be hard to be a bad guy if you kept telling everybody that you were that or that you did something that clearly makes you a bad guy. I'm sure they exist, but those are unsuccessful bad guys. Successful bad guys or even, even just, you know, mediocre bad guys, probably instinctively, if not 
by by um, nurture figure out that they can't actually be open about being bad guys. Good guys, on the other hand, tend to be open because why not? It's, there's good news in here. So good guys have a disadvantage by that. Specifically, um, the more information you have about a person or their situation, their circumstances, the more potential leverage you have against them. You don't have to be a bad guy to, to, to want that leverage. You can just be an opponent of another good guy with whom you disagree. It's a disadvantage to be open. Therefore, the good good guys, or maybe the smart good guys, they uh, might have to be more closed. And in fact, that's arguably one of the major points that Alan Dulles is making. We're obviously the good guys, right? Whoever we mean by we, we're obviously the good guys. Uh, we need to stop talking so much because it's going to do us harm in the long run. He's saying we are good, good guys, or we should be good, good guys. He's basically he's saying he's a good, good guy, a smart, good guy, a good guy who's not so open. And he's saying the rest of us should be that way too. The, the, the government printing office, the New York Times, whomever he had in mind, or whatever he had in mind, whatever institutions. And he'll tell us. He does tell us in the chapter, but I'm just shorthanding it. They should be smart, good guys too, he says, he will say when we review in more detail, because you're vulnerable if you're naturally open. Another disadvantage of good guys is that their mistakes can make them look like bad guys. They can, mistakes, anybody's mistakes can lead to harm. Bad guys' successes, when they do things right, can lead, you know, do often lead to harm. But good guys' mistakes can lead to harm and make them look like bad guys. That's another disadvantage of being a good guy. There's a third point that's much harder to, I don't know if it's harder to make. It's harder to think about, but we have to go here to this, to a new danger zone. It's not a danger, it's literally the danger zone in a sense. We're going to talk about blood and guts, just so that I won't leave you in too much suspense, but not too much, just from an academic voice. So, we can probably assume that there is, at some level in complex societies or complex coexisting societies, that there is some need for what you might call the bloodthirsty. If your group is going to survive, your good guy group, or mostly good guy group, is going to survive in a contest against another mostly good guy group, you might need bloodthirsty bad guys, or bloodthirsty... Good guys? Is that even something we can imagine? If the other team has the same. Or even if they don't, what if they're just smarter than you? What if, the good, what if your opponent in, a, in another complex group, you're in, a, you're in one group and your opponent group is all good guys, but they're smarter than you and you face annihilation based on something they want to do, something they're going to do unless you stop them. Now, you might redefine them as bad guys if they're going to annihilate you by whatever they're doing, but let's just play with this toy example. You might need bloodthirsty guys on your team so that you don't disappear from history. Bloodthirsty guys, good or bad, sometimes preserve groups with good guys in them. Some good guys, or mostly good guys. Let's be more specific. 
Victor Nell wrote an article in the Oxford Companion to the Mind, second edition, 2004, on cruelty. And it's a longer article for, for a reference like this, but I'm going to read from the section, uh, section two, The Origins of Cruelty. This is page 230 of this edition. The first effective predators emerged with the middle Cambrian explosion of animal life circa 540 million years ago, with sense organs to locate prey and the ability to pursue and overpower it, overpower the prey. And he cites an interesting study that we'll look at later. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm slicing and dicing here. Uh, the, the effort expended is, and again, he's, he's quoting for someone else now, the effort expended is enormously costly relative to the quantity of meat that is usually available. The costs of hunting, which is to say nutritional killing by hominids, in hunter-gatherer societies is equally high. Uh, among the Dobe Kung, a tribe presumably, 10 hunter hours yield a thousand calories of meat as against four hours for a thousand calories of vegetable foods. And he cites Lee, 1968. Successes for the individual hunter are sparse and unpredictable, with the daily failure rate for individual Hadza hunters at 97%. Hunting, thus, involves a great deal of effort and prestige, and a hunter may go days or weeks without a kill. The Kung hunting yield is one hunter hour per 100 calories. And I didn't notice this when I, when I read this the first few times. That, that's roughly what our caloric take, intake is as adults. If, if it's one, one hour per 100 calories, 2,000 calorie diet, that's 20 hours. You sleep for four and you get up and you go hunting again. All right. Given these high costs, the predatory and hunting adaptations could not have emerged without massive conditioned reinforcers that derive from the prey's terror and struggles to escape as it is brought down, the shedding of its blood and its vocalizations as it is wounded and eaten, often while it is still alive. In surviving forager societies, Killing and butchering game is accompanied by a similar panoply of auditory, visual, olfactory, tactile, gustatory, and visceral stimuli. A working hypothesis is that it is this stimulus array tied back to the prey's blood and death that reinforces and sustains human cruelty and accounts for its high reward value. Not fun to think about for most of us. Um, he, he makes, he makes many more details about how serious, um, intellectually and philosophically the problem of cruelty is because it's not just about the person inflicting the cruelty. There's also the problem of the audience. But the point is cruelty is a part of the picture, both on the bad guy and good guy side and untangling that picture is no mean feat. So we'll call that a good guy problem, the problem of cruelty. Bringing it back to presumably what Alan Dulles means by free societies, 
we can say something like this. The monopoly on violence, as held by the state or you know, the, the series of government entities, uh, hierarchical government entities that are above us, so to speak, the monopoly on violence combines with the ever-present threat of violence in the form of crime, in the form of war, that at least partially organizes a society. So I'm saying these two things combine, the monopoly on violence and the threat of violence that partially organizes a society. And we might then say that fear and security are preludes to everything else. Probably an overstatement, but it's, it's worth considering. When we're talking about problems of what is the case and what ought to be the case, this is definitely one of them. Violence, the monopoly on violence, and the ever-present threat of violence in the real world. Now, I said it partially, this, this threat of violence, say crime or war, uh, partially organizes a society. I'm not saying it organizes a society. And if you recognize that phrase or some phrase like it, you're probably remembering something called the report from Iron Mountain, which, as far as we can tell in our limited reading of it here, is, was, a, was, was satire but we haven't looked at it very closely. Um, but there's a, there's a quote from, the, from Oliver Stone's JFK movie, Mr. X or whatever, whatever you call the guy uh, who, who gives the long speech, kind of weaving all the threads together and revealing the, what's really going on. He says that, I think he says that violence is the organizing principle of any society, something like that. That, that came from, from the report from Iron Mountain, um, if memory serves, and then and and then it got into that from from sort of a zealous conspiracy conspiracy theorist who kind of came from the inside. These are beyond the the scope of our current discussion, but that's what's going on when you hear that organizing a society by violence. We'll come. Um, we'll probably come back to that. Uh, moving on, problems of is and ought. We've got two more things worth saying here about problems of what is the case and what ought to be. Uh, when, when reading something like Dulles' chapter 15. So, let's talk about psychological warfare and let's talk about cyber warfare and the, the, likely, the likelihood that these two things, psychological and, cyber, and, and now cyber warfare, are preludes themselves to kinetic warfare. Let's talk about rumors. Psychological warfare, let's talk about rumors. Patrick O'Donnell the military historian, uh, writes in 2004 in his book Operatives, Spies, and Saboteurs, The Unknown Story of the Men and Women of World War II's OSS. He says this, and he's quoting, most of this is, is him quoting George Piday. George Piday, an agent assigned to the MO, uh, morale operations of the OSS, the MO mission in Bari, Italy, recalls his role in developing rumors and their devastating impact inside Hungary. This is during World War II. My job was to keep close liaison with the Hungarian section and to attend weekly rumor meetings and submit our own rumors to the board. At those meetings, the rumors were checked and discussed individually. I do not know what methods were used to get the rumors into the respective countries. However, one thing was evident. The rumors hit the spot. 
the Hungarian newspapers were screaming their heads off, cautioning and threatening the population not to listen to or believe in those rumors. It is my firm belief that rumors are one of the best morale operations weapons. It is easy to get one started from a neutral country or by agents inside the enemy country, and it has a very damaging effect on the army and civilian population. So much for psychological warfare in the form of rumors. What about another kind of warfare? Cyber, what's called cyber warfare. We're talking about psychological warfare and cyber warfare as preludes to kinetic warfare, the, the usual kind that we think of, tanks and bombs. The physicist-turned-security expert Bruce, uh, Bruce Schneier wrote in two, 2016, this is an article that he published in, uh, on, on the Lawfare blog, but, um, but I'm quoting it uh, from, from his own blog, Schneier on Security, so I can't, I can't be sure that the two texts match. Uh, but he's writing, um, he's writing about, well, the title of the article is, Someone is Learning How to Take Down the Internet. This is in 2016. Over the past year or two, someone has been probing the defenses of the companies that run critical pieces of the Internet. These probes take the form of precisely calibrated attacks designed to determine exactly how well these companies can defend themselves and what would be required to take them down. We don't know who is doing this, but it feels like a large nation-state. China and Russia would be my first guess. My first guesses. It doesn't seem like something an activist, criminal, or researcher would do. Profiling core infrastructure is common practice in espionage and intelligence gathering. It's not normal for companies to do that. Furthermore, the size and scale of these probes, and especially their persistence, points to state actors. It feels like a nation's military cyber command trying to calibrate its weaponry in the case of cyber warfare in the case of cyber war. It reminds me of the U.S. Cold War program of flying high-altitude planes over the Soviet Union to force their air defense systems to turn on, to map their capabilities. That's Bruce, Bruce Schneier. I have trouble saying his name. Bruce Schneier. 2016. Four years ago, as of this recording, and who knows what you know, dear listener, Hailing from the future. All right, we've talked about problems of trust, problems of evidence, and problems of what is and what ought to be when we read Dulles or anybody else. This last group of problems, let's call problems of capacity or problems of our individual capacities. And really, it's not a group of problems. It's one that leads to many. What we're going to have to do when we read Dulles, or when we read pretty much anyone else, although it's very obvious that we need to do it when we read Dulles, is hold more than one picture of reality in mind. We're going to need to not collapse into Dulles is a good guy, Dulles is a bad guy. Dulles is a good guy who went bad, a bad guy trying to pretend to be good. We're going to have to hold all of those in mind if we want to get the right answer to the question what's going on out there. So 
let's look for a definition that will encourage us when we get discouraged. F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote a piece in, um, where was it? I'm drawing a blank. Esquire in the 30s. It's old. But it's the best, it's the best uh, idea for what we need here. There's a competing one that's actually attributed to Aristotle, but it's not, he didn't say what people say he said. And I know that thanks to the dogged internet researchers who, who make the internet a better place. Here's Fitzgerald's definition of a first-rate intelligence, which we should aspire to be, of course. The test of a, fir- uh, of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. So we must hold two or more, ideally, and retain the ability to function, the ability to go forward, to work on the problem, what's going on out there, and, and all of its um, progeny. He continues in that piece to say something that might also be useful to us. One should, for example, be able to see that things are hopeless and yet be determined to make them otherwise. This philosophy fitted onto my early adult life when I saw the improbable, the implausible, often the impossible, come true. Life was something you dominated if you were any good. Life yielded easily to intelligence and effort and to what proportion could be mustered of both. We will need to keep those words firmly in mind. So let's recap. Dulles' argument that we shouldn't and that we don't need to talk so much, tell so much of our secrets or things that should be secret, whatever points he goes on to make will be made, this, this argument will be made complex by the myriad problems that affect all such arguments and all arguments. We've gone through them. We've talked about different kinds of problems that are going to affect his argument and our reading of it. Problems of evidence, problems of trust, problems of what is and what ought to be, and problems of our individual capacities, problems of philosophy and experience. These problems are uniquely solved or not by each one of us to some degree or degrees, and, notably, unmeasured, though perhaps with the aid of machines, and I'm thinking the quantified self, not that I'm a practitioner, with the aid of machines, these imperfect solutions that we all make might be measurable in some sense, though not necessarily the right one or a good one. On our next segment, we'll talk more about chapter 15, but we won't prepare for it any longer. We'll go through it in detail. We'll look closely and find out what Dulles and his cooperators and collaborators have to say about security in a free society. The references from today's show are in the RSS feed, the show notes in the podcast, will be forthcoming shortly. The full notes are will be on our website uh, on the notes page. This is re- Retrace uh, segment number two. Our website is retrace.com, R-E-T-R-A-I-C-E. 
www.thepodcast.com. Signing off.